0: Welcome to The View from the Penalty Box Podcast with Cam Conner. Classic hockey stories from one of hockey's toughest enforcers. Podcast number 41. I'm Cam Connor along with my son Chris.
1: So, welcome back, everybody. We have a whole bunch of questions that we've been neglecting, Dad. So, we're going to take part of the episode for you to catch up on questions or some really interesting ones. And we'll end the episode with a story that happened a couple days ago that particularly touched your heart when. I guess the backup of the backup goalie got to play in the NHL and see if that's ever happened, something similar to when you were playing hockey. We wanted to thank everybody for their podcast reviews. Dad, I'm just going to read you a quick one. I hope I didn't read this one already. They gave us five stars. It says, I'm 50 years old and these stories remind me of the days going to games in Chicago where I grew up and seeing a lot of the players that Cam played with and against. The names, stories, and insight are awesome. So thanks very much for the reviews. We really appreciate it. We'll just go through the social media handles in case you don't follow Dad. It's Twitter, Cam Connor, NHL. You're on Facebook and Instagram. And we do have merchandise at view from penaltybox.com slash merch. And if you use the link that is at the very end of this episode, if you just scroll down, The link gets you 25% off. We appreciate that. So a few episodes ago, you made sure to share a few stories from one of your teammates on the Houston Arrows in the WHA. His name was Larry Hale, who recently passed away. And it was nice to hear from, I believe it was his nephews, uh, who... Wanted to share a bit of the kinder side or the side that maybe you didn't share because you were telling the the funny stories that you remember from Larry. So we thought I would read what they wrote and it was quite nice. So it says, Hi Cam and Chris, I've been listening to your podcast since the end of September when my uncle Larry Hale passed away. I think the show is great. I love the half hour format. It's just the right length. I really like your stories about Larry. Not the most flattering, but real. I can imagine Larry locking himself in the taxi and laughing his head off, rubbing his hands together. Larry had a huge heart. He got lots of kids, scholarships, through contacts he made in hockey over the years. He did all the scouting at the Okanagan for lots of his old friends who were scouts. Bill Deneen for the Flyers organization, a Lowell University GM, and others. He never took any money. He should have. Besides the Okanagan Hockey School, which he started with Larry Lund, he started one of the first all girl hockey schools in Canada. And in the late 80s, he had an adult hockey school in Parksville on Vancouver Island. Pat Quinn, Dunk Wilson, Johnny Bauer, and Bobby Hall would play games with paying customers and then golf and salmon fish. He loved fishing, hunting birds, and helping out people that most people would cross the street to avoid back in 1974 or maybe 75 I went to Houston with my mom I was only about five or six Larry took me to the arena I think it was outside and the bay doors were up some guys were sharpening skates and Larry told them to cut up on Gordy's sticks for his nephew I tried using the stick in hockey when I got home but the coach wouldn't let me too much of a curve the puck kept going under the blade keep up the good work so That's uh, a side of Larry Hale that they wanted to share. And do you have any thoughts on that, Dad?
0: Well, you know, I'm glad they shared that because I did tell some stories about Larry and how he left John Shelland and I to fight these 10 guys by ourselves. And he broke through this pack and jumped in the cab and locked the door. You know, we didn't get hurt. So it's funny. I do like the idea that I was reminded that there's more to Larry than what I said they are right larry did have a kind side he was a gentle soul until he started drinking too much then it was a different larry but we all loved him and we called him stony you know larry larry was a good man and i could i could see him doing a lot for others and not really worried you know about the financial ramifications and uh you know again i'm glad you told us and uh, reminded me larry was a good man he could be on my team any day that week, probably because I like him as a person. He was good in the dressing room, and he was a very positive gentleman in the dressing room as well, of course. That's what I remember about Larry.
1: So we have a question from Louise, and she actually emailed through the Contact Us form on the viewfromthepenaltybox.com website. So we do check that too. Uh, so Louise says, love your podcast, brings back fond memories of going to Connect games when I was growing up. I have a question I'm hoping you might answer. Why do most Canadian hockey players shoot left and Americans shoot right? Best regards, Louise.
0: Well, Louise, when I read that, I was thinking, like, how how do you figure that out? And, you know, in my mind, I would have thought that the vast majority of hockey players would shoot left. And maybe a third or less would shoot right without ever doing any official looking and trying to figure it out so when you asked that question i actually was at work and uh get in early in the morning at work so i did it on my time but i i googled just to kind of find out if there was anything you know on the internet about what you asked and so it was kind of interesting i'm just going to read a couple stats that i found on the internet so when you talk about let's just because you know it you got the U.S. players, the Canadians, the Russians, Swedes. The Russians, out of forty thirty-nine players, thirty-one shoot left and eight shot right, and that's kind of the breakdown. I thought you were going to see when you when you looked at the other countries, and then you look at Sweden. Seventy-one players in the NHL sh- shoot left. That's seventy-one shoot left. 27 shoot right. So that's kind of, again, dominating from the, from the shooting left side. But then when you start looking at the Canadians and the Americans, again, you look at the Americans, 119 players in the NHL that are American shoot left, 111 shoot right. So that's almost 50%. I would have called bullshit on that if somebody would have told me. I said, "No way." But the stats are the stats. And then in Canada, you had 221 NHL players shoot left, and 143 shoot right. So you know, with Canadians and and, and the U.S. players, it's it's a much closer value between the left and the right shooters. Uh, but again, you look at the Russians and the Swedes, it by far favors the left-handed shooters. Why? I have no idea. Sometimes when a few of us talk about it, well, why did you shoot right or why did you learn to shoot left? And some of them would say, well, you know, growing up, we only had a right-handed stick in the house, so I had to learn to shoot from the right. I don't, I don't really know why other than, uh I guess you pick up a stick and you, and it's like throwing a baseball maybe. You know, you you start throwing with your left and you don't know why, or you start throwing with your right, you don't know why, and then you just carry it on. So anyways, good question. And now I realize it's it's uh, it's a lot closer to the same amount shooting left and right in Canada, in North America. So we
1: have an email from Kyle. Before I read this, I want to say how much we do appreciate when you take the time to send an email at view from the penalty box at gmail.com. So Kyle writes, Hey guys, love the show. Talked to my dad about the show as he was a huge fan in your day. He said one word that describes Cam on the ice was menacing. Really enjoy the old stories of when there were no rules. Was up in Flin a few weeks ago and watched a game with my son. Got a chance to walk around and found these two great pictures. Did the fans throw a moose leg on the ice after a win when you played? Keep up the great work. And then he attached some photos from back in your day that are displayed in Flin Flon. But did they throw a moose leg on the ice?
0: You know, I actually I actually forgot all about that. Flin Flon, if anybody wants to look where it is, you know, and maybe you're from the States, you take a look at the province of Manitoba, which is north of your North South Dakota. And then you'll see the town, the city of Winnipeg. And it's a nine-hour bus ride up to Flintflon And uh, Flinflon is a mining town. And it's a tough little mining town. And back then, when I played hockey there, the population was 10,000. I think it's a lot less now because the mine, which was called the Hudson Bay Mining and Smelting Company, has closed the door to my understanding. So there'd be a lot less reason to stay in Flinflon if you don't have a job. So it it was pretty wild, and you had all sorts of characters coming to the game. And uh, there was one gentleman who, after every game that we won, I don't know if they gave it back to him, but he'd throw a moose leg. I mean, an actual leg from a moose. Again, I don't think that uh, – they must have kept giving it back to the guy because how many moose would you need it by the end of the year? I had to keep throwing legs on the ice. So, yep, that was true. I forgot all about that. This fella's father said, you know, in Flin Flon, I was menacing. That probably was right because I was a tough kid, you know, and I'm, I've talked in other podcasts about myself and my best buddy, Lee Roddy Piper, and our scrapping we did as a kid growing up in the streets. So he kind of just carried it over into hockey. And when I was named captain of Flintflon, Flon, I just, and I've said it before, I just felt that. With this coach giving me that responsibility to be captain, to be a leader, I took that serious. And on the ice, it was really rough hockey back in those days. But if you pushed anybody in my team around, I didn't know if I could, you know, fight on the ice, but I was willing to try. So I would jump in there every time I was on the ice and somebody was pushing somebody else around. I don't know why I had to get in between them and I would fight that guy. So, you know, at the end of the year, I guess uh, maybe I was menacing because I'd go after whoever I had to go after. You know, the longer you play the game, like they don't run out of tough guys. And I know playing pro, you know, you might uh, be aggressive with some teams and then they say to you, you're you're going to – coach would tell you. The other coach and the other team said, you're going to get a next game. And what do they do? They bring up from their farm teams a bunch of their fighters. And so the whole game, you got to be watching for these guys coming off the bench, and you know they're there to fight you. So it's not a fun job. I would rather have been the guy that scored all the goals, had a lot of bargaining power when it come time to renegotiate. But, you know, I was always willing to fight, and unfortunately sometimes that overtakes any talent you might have, and the coaches tend to just label you as, being aggressive and somebody else can score the goals. So
1: so this is a easy question for you, but Brian sent in, I just started listening to the podcast. Great work, guys. I've been searching everywhere to find out who the other player was that played with Mr. Hockey and the great one. Please, can you save me a lot of hair pulling and whiskey drinking and throwing chairs around and tell me who the other player was Keep up the great work. Thanks, Brian. And you do mention it on another episode, but I think it's one of our first. So you are one of the people that played with Gordy Howe and Wayne Gretzky. And who is the other person?
0: Well, the other person was a a defenseman that played in the Houston organization. He was, uh, you know, I was like 24, 25 there. And he was 36, 37, I think. And his name was Paul that's right, not Paul, but Paul Popiel. He ended up uh, on the Oilers farm team, and there was some defenseman hurt, and so they actually brought him up for just a very few games. I don't even know if he got to play, but so by coming up with the Oilers, then uh, he's the other gentleman that shares that distinction of having to play with Wayne Gretzky and Gordy Howe, the great Gordy Howe. You know, timing is everything in life. And so Paul Popiel, when he got brought up, it was the same time for team pitcher. So he's in the team pitcher, even though he was only here for a couple games. And having said that, I'm not in the team pitcher. For which team? This is for the Edmonton Oilers team pitcher. And uh, the reason was is because I had cracked my kneecap and I wasn't being able to play. But the trainer, they're not as good as, you know, trainers are today. And the trainer we had, he said, oh, you've just got a bruised knee. And so they kept me off the the ice and I had water on my knee and they had me lifting weights with my legs. And so all I was doing is separating the crack in my kneecap. And after about three or four days of this, my wife, Sherilyn, just said, you know, your knee's not getting any better. You better go for an x-ray. The trainers didn't suggest an x-ray because he said there's nothing wrong with you. So it was team pitcher day. And uh, I didn't skate for practice. But when they come off the ice, I put my gear on. I was the first guy out there for individual photo. So you just skate on the ice by yourself and you stand there and they, you know, you bend over with your stick on the ice. And they took some photos and then I went off the ice. They still had another 22, 23 guys to take pictures of. And I just said, you know what? I don't care if I'm in the Oilers picture because I'm not going to ever live here. And so I think I'm probably the only pro athlete that didn't care if they are in the team picture, and I regret it now, now that I've lived in Edmonton for 30 years. So whenever I go to the arena and they got the first-year orders up there, I'm no longer in the picture, even though I was here. So I regret that. Like I said, after the individual shots, I took off and then you know, an hour or two later, they did the team photos. And so if I could move the clock back, number one, I'd never gone to the World Hockey. I would have gone right to the NHL. And number two, I would have stayed for my Oilers pitcher.
1: And this will be the last question that we answer. It's from Joshua, and it says, Cam, I see that you played on the Nighthawks with Mark Wells. Do you have any stories about him? Have you interacted with any other players from the 1980 USA hockey team? Did you watch Canada's 6-4 loss to the USSR at the 1980 Olympics? What was it like to see Canada hockey protest the 72 and 76 games? Thank you for all your stories.
0: Well, Mark Wells. Obviously, you know Mark Wells, or you're a fan of Mark Wells. So when the Americans won the gold medal for the Olympics in 1980, uh, that changed my life. I had I was traded by the Oilers to the Rangers. I finished the year off. I broke my hand in a fight, so I missed a lot of the playoffs. And then the season starts the next year, and they got rid of the coach, Fred Shiro. And they brought in uh, Herb Brooks, who coached the 1980 gold medal Olympic team. And his general manager was a guy named Craig Patrick. Well, Craig wanted to bring all his Olympic athlete players who were small And they were fast. And I don't think he realized. I mean, out of all those players, there was only a couple that really made their mark in the NHL. But the rest, you know, they were quick skaters. But there's a little bit more to it back in my day than being a fast skater. Mark Pavelich played on that team. I played with him in the Ranger organization. Outstanding hockey player and an outstanding person. Modest. I can't say enough of Mark, about Mark Pavlich, and I have recently read that he's having some uh, some problems back in Minnesota with the police, and uh, I think he's suffered a few concussions, which is causing him some mental problems. And so, Mark, I hope you get better, buddy. You're a good man. You know, so all of a sudden, they bring in these small fast forwards, and so in practice, these guys look like a million dollars. They skate faster than me, but when the pucks drop, I get involved in the game. I don't stay on the peripheral. So they got rid of me because Craig Patrick, he wanted really fast skaters. And so the league, the players in the league, in the NHL back then, they nicknamed the Rangers the Smurfs. That's why at the end of the season, when they were taking on the big tough flyers in the playoffs, they had to bring me up. In order to counter the flyers. And it wasn't these big fast. These small fast forwards. Because they just couldn't take the physical game. So I'm a little bit sour. That you know Craig Patrick sent me to the farm team. But you know that's life. And those are the cards I was dealt. Back to Mark Wells. Mark was a good skater. Just like the rest of the team. He was a down to earth guy. I liked him. He was well liked on the team. I can't think any funny stories or anything out of the ordinary about Mark Wells. But, you know, there was a guy named Bill Baker who was on that team too. Uh, we played with Bill and he was a, a good, good man. And I think he went on to become a dentist. And um, there was a guy on defense for the Islanders named Morrow. He turned out to be probably the the best all-around consistent hockey player from that Olympic team. And there was many that, You know, showed up for half a year, a year, and then that was the end of that. But it it sure changed my life when the U.S. won the gold medal. And as far as you know, the hockey for Team Canada getting beat by the U.S. I think you said, Chris. Honestly, uh, I'd have to Google it. I wouldn't have missed any of those games, but off the top of my head, I can't even tell you anything about those that series.
1: So, do you want to know what happened to Mark Wells? Yeah. Do you know? Okay. I don't know. According to Wikipedia, it says, following his retirement from hockey, Wells worked as a restaurant manager in Michigan, but sustained a fractured vertebrae while unloading crates. Following 11 hours of surgery, Wells was informed by the doctor that he had a rare degenerative spinal disease. The illness, which affects the discs in the spinal column, forced Wells to retire from work and required multiple surgeries, leaving him bedridden for extended periods, and clinically depressed. Wells did, however, manage to suit up for the reunion game with his Miracle on Ice teammates prior to the 2002 Winter Olympics against Doctor's Orders, playing in one shift and recording a shot on gold. It says that he reluctantly sold his gold medal medallion to a private collector for 40000 The medal was later auctioned off by the buyer for $310,000. Whoa! And it goes on and on. So it uh, doesn't look like it's that positive. So th- that's what's happening to Mark. I thought I would have a, a better update for you.
0: Well, Chris, seeing how he sold his uh, medal for forty grand and it went for three hundred, dollars the Stanley Cup ring that I have on my finger that I was going to give to you, if there's somebody out there that wants to give me six figures for it, email me, please, and you might be missing a ring, Chris.
1: So yesterday you were on, uh, not Tom Laidlaw's podcast, but you did Facebook Live with him, and I believe it's also on YouTube. So how did that go, and uh, what was the technical difficulty that you had peering like a ghost?
0: Well, Tom Laidlaw was uh, a hockey player that I played with briefly with the Ranger organization. I got along well with Tom, but I think everybody gets along with Tom. You know, I was saddened when... I got sent to the farm team. This is by Craig Patrick. Again, that changed my life. And Tom has reached out to me a couple of times, and he asked me to be on his podcast. So I called in yesterday. I don't know what happened to the picture, but, uh, you know, you get Tom on half the screen, colors, Ranger jersey in the background, hanging on the wall. And mine, I look like somebody out of the Munsters, or I look like Casper the Ghost. It was just like pretty well all white more or less just saw my eyes and a little bit of my nose and my teeth. It was like uh, brutal. It's almost worth looking at just to see that picture of me. But I said to Tom, hey, Tom, maybe we ought to postpone this. He goes, oh, no, no, let's do it. So, you know, it is what it is. So, I mean, I'm not in a beauty contest, but uh, Tom did say that he wanted to do it because this way he looks better than me. And Tom... You always look better than me, so we didn't need that to happen to me. But uh, yeah, check out Tom's podcast. Tom is a pretty entertaining guy.
1: So before you talk about uh, the Zamboni driver making the NHL for a game, you had one story that you mentioned to me in passing, and I said you should mention it on the podcast, about one of the players that you played with that got robbed and stripped naked. So why don't you talk about that story?
0: Well, what my son is referring to is when I played for Phoenix Roadrunners, we used to travel into Houston to take on the Houston Arrows. And in the early days of that franchise, there was an older arena that was right in the old part of downtown Houston. And there was a little bit of a... uh, What's the word I want to use politely? It was kind of a little bit of a shady area or a rough area. And so we would always go to the games. We'd leave at 5, 5.30, you know, for the 7.30 game because we were probably only a 10, 15 minute walk away from the arena. And there was a guy by the name of Perry Miller, if I remember correctly, who played for the Winnipeg Jets. And they would they were in town maybe the week before. And so all the guys had already gone to the rink, so he was running a little bit late. So back in those days, you had to wear a suit, obviously a dress shirt and a tie. You had to look presentable. So he was walking to the game and uh, you had to, there was a bunch of trees, uh, almost like a park setting and, uh, and a and a busy road right beside you. And these guys pulled up and uh, they stripped him of his suit and uh, his tie, his shirt and left him in his underwear, and Perry had to go to the game and convince you know the ticket takers that he was one of the one of the Winnipeg jets hockey players and and I understand it took him a while to talk his way in, but they they let him in, and so I always made sure that after I heard that story about getting stripped down to your underwear that uh, there was always two or three of us going to the games together, so it wouldn't happen to us so. That's the story. And I also want to say one other thing. In one of my podcasts, I talked about my Phoenix Roadrunner coach, Sandy Huckle. And I won't go into all the stuff that I've already said about him and my opinion about him as a coach and as a person. But one of the things that I said was when, you know, here I am, number five in the NHL draft. You know, he told me before the season even started, before I even started training camp, that. He was going to do his best to get me to the farm team. And so I'm thinking, okay, why? where is this coming from? But where I'm going with this is, so whenever we went into Winnipeg, the first two games that I remember, I'm all excited to go to Winnipeg. I'm playing in the pros. I'm with Phoenix Roadrunners. My mom and dad have got tickets. and My friends have got tickets. I got people I went to school with that have got tickets to see me. I've got relatives that live in our outside the city that have all come in. I know the newspaper reporters. And I'm excited to play against the Winnipeg Jets. I, I really want to do well. And uh, the first game in there, you know, didn't even get a shift. Not, uh, not even one shift. Just sat on the bench for the whole game. The next time that we went in, I had pulled a groin muscle on my left groin, and it was killing me, but he wouldn't let me rest it. I had to go to all the practices, can't miss a game. And so weeks and weeks, I was struggling with this bad groin, and they would tape it. And then I screwed up the other, the right groin, and I had to tape both legs. And the trainer kept saying, would you let him take a rest? And he wouldn't, he wouldn't. And so then when our team was going to play in Winnipeg, he told the trainer, now he can rest it so he wouldn't take me on the road trip, right? You know, I said in my previous podcast, if I was a coach, number one, I would never treat anybody, whoever it was, rookie or veteran, back in their own city. I would make sure that they got some power play. Like I would I would do my best to, to give them an opportunity to play. I really would. And I thought that it was phenomenal. There's a gentleman that played for the Oilers. He's been on the farm team for a couple of years now, and his name is Tyler Benson, and he is from Edmonton. And they brought him up for the first game in his career playing in the NHL, and he's starting. He's at home, and his family and all of their friends are there. And what does the coach do? This is a rookie who's never, ever played a game in the pro They put him on the starting lineup. He's on the starting lineup. And this coach gave him an opportunity to shine in front of his family and friends and made it such a positive first game for him that, you know, I'm a big fan of the coach right now just because of what he did for Tyler. Sure, you're a pro. I get it. I get it. I get it. But you know what? We're still human. We still have friends. We still have pride. And uh, Mr. Tippett, The coach for the Oilers, my hat's off to you. And I'm sure Tyler Benson appreciated you doing your best to give him the ice time and to actually have him start the game. So coaches, if you're listening, don't be like that. Give these guys an opportunity in front of their home folks to do something for themselves.
1: And talk about a small world. My sister, your daughter Jessica, actually taught Tyler in junior high. So she was his homeroom teacher. And she said that he was an honors with distinction kid and really smart, really nice. And she mentioned that he actually came to school on his draft day so that he wouldn't miss any material or miss any work. So I guess that shows uh, his hard work and dedication. So that's interesting.
0: Well, I got to say, Tyler, you're a better kid than me, because if I had uh, any excuse to get out of school on my draft day, I would have. You're a better person than me. And uh, obviously, you did a little better in school than me, too. Way to go. So Toronto. I hope uh, I'd like to talk about the Zamboni driver a couple nights ago when the Leafs were taking on the Carolina Hurricanes in Toronto. Both of their goalies, because you have your starting goalie and then you have your backup goalie, and the starting goalie got hurt, so you put your backup goalie on. Not very often have I ever seen both goalies get hurt the same game. But the Leafs had a backup goalie for the backup goalie sitting in the stands. And I guess he shows up all the time. And there's been a few times that he's had to get dressed. But, you know, he's not playing. And so I think his name was Ayers. And so, you know, he's got an awful lot of publicity. He's been on a lot of the shows in the States. He's been on the news all over. And he went in there and uh, he let two goals in, but he stopped eight or nine of them. and, And I think they won six to three. And so when you get a guy who's is a Zamboni driver, and that's nothing wrong with being a Zamboni driver, but he's not a professional goalie. We had in junior sometimes when, you know, we're on the road for two to three weeks at a time and maybe you're starting goalie is hurt, so the backup, so they would actually take a defenseman and put them as the backup goalie in the game. And us players, we thought that was so funny because the the defenseman that they would put in that would go in net if the goalie got hurt, they were sweating bullets. They did not want, they'd say, don't get hurt, I don't want to go in. Well, we were laughing so hard, we were praying and hoping that the backup goalie got hurt. And so these defense, this defenseman had to go in. Never did happen, but boy, we were sh- we had our fingers crossed that uh, he would have to go in. And so when when you get somebody at that level playing against the NHL, so maybe some of you guys play senior hockey or you go for skating, you go, wow, this guy on our team, could he ever shoot a puck hard? My friends, if you ever get on the ice with an NHL player, this is what they do for a living. And can they ever shoot a puck? So I, I've been out before with seniors and guys on my team would say, oh, look at so and so. Have you ever seen a shot like that? You know what? It's, it's a hard shot for that level. But believe me, they're not even close to what the NHL boys can do. And so when you get the goalie from so far down a level playing against the NHL, like, he hasn't seen shots like that come at him. So if I was a coach and they had to put up, put their backup, backup goalie in, I would tell our guys, shoot from the red line, shoot from the blue line, shoot from every angle. Make that goalie stop the puck. Give him a lot of work. And if you make that goalie move around and you're shooting a lot of pucks, he's probably not in shape, number two. He's 42 years old, this gentleman. He doesn't work out for two hours every day like the pros do. And so you think you could wear him down? So I don't know, and I didn't see the game, but I I would I don't know why that you wouldn't pepper that goalie with shots from every angle, just shooting it as hard as you can, because the reaction time to these pucks coming in, like you you just can't react quick enough if you haven't if you're not used to it. So my hats off to you, sir. Good job.
1: I was just going to say, I think he let two goals in really quick.
0: Well, I could just see those first two that went in. The team members are going, oh, no, we just got a big lead. Goodbye to that. But the team stepped up, and the goalie stopped what he had to stop, and they got to two points, and uh, they gave him the jersey. And it's also my understanding that Carolina's flying him in and his family, and they're going to present him with something when he gets to Carolina at the next home game. So, Dream come true for this guy. This is his 15 minutes of fame. They interviewed his family. They were showing them in front of the TV at home. Beautiful children, wonderful wife and friends, so congratulations.
1: Okay, well, that was a fun episode. Thanks again, everyone, for your reviews and for listening, and don't forget to send in your questions. Until next time, I'm Chris.
0: And I'm Cam. Thank you.